Coming up next, focus on medical education, part of this month's featured series on ReachMD XM157. Aortic valve disease, the role of hemodynamic measurements. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and joining me today is Dr. Rick Stauffer. Dr. Stauffer is the Henry A. Foscuth Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Cardiology. He's the Director of Interventional Cardiology and the Chief of Clinical Cardiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He and his colleagues have edited a book called Cardiovascular Hemodynamics for the Clinician, published in 2008 by Blackwell Publishing. Dr. Stouffer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I thought we would talk about a disease which I think is becoming more common as the population ages, aortic stenosis and aortic valvular disease. How can hemodynamic measurements help us in the management of patients with aortic stenosis? Aortic valvular disease has been an interesting clinical problem for 50 years in cardiology and And you, I'm sure, have seen many patients with aortic stenosis. And one of the main issues always is defining the right time to replace the valve. These patients can have very severe aortic disease and not have any problems and live many years without having the valve replaced. In other cases, patients with what appears to us to be moderate aortic stenosis will have significant symptoms and will benefit from valve replacement. What I find is that hemodynamics give us an indication of how well the heart is adjusting to the stenotic valve. In many cases, even though the gradient across the aortic valve may not be huge, the end diastolic pressure or the filling pressures in the left ventricle will be high, indicating that the heart is struggling to keep up with the increased afterload. Having the hemodynamics, I think, helps us tailor who will better benefit from a valve replacement and who is safe to wait and see how they do. What specific measurements do you like to see then when you're trying to assess, is it time for surgery for these patients? What, what we look at is a standard measurement, such as the aortic valve area, which is calculated using the Gorlin equation and which takes into account the mean pressure gradient across the aortic valve. Other things we look at are left ventricular end diastolic pressure, the filling pressures required, cardiac output, pulmonary hypertension, whether the patient also has elevated filling pressures on the right side of the heart that may be due to the aortic stenosis. I think all those pressures taken in combination can give you a feel for how well the heart is dealing with the aortic stenosis. Let's talk a little bit about the gradient because this is a measurement we can get both from invasive hemodynamic measurement and from non-invasive measurement. We can get mean gradients and peak gradients. Is there a difference between them? Does it make a difference which one we measure? Using echocardiogram, you measure peak instantaneous. And so what that does is any given point in time measures the difference between the left ventricular and aortic pressure. In the cardiac catheterization lab, we measure the peak-to-peak gradient, which is the peak in the left ventricular pressure minus the peak in the aorta, peak systolic pressure in aortic. And that is not the same as peak instantaneous pressure because the aortic pressure will peak later than the LV pressure will peak. In both echo and in the cardiac catheterization, we calculate mean pressures across the valve, and in many circumstances, those should be very similar. If you're measuring a mean gradient, is there a particular mean gradient at which we would call somebody severe aortic stenosis? Mean gradient, which correlates with a severe aortic stenosis, I think is very dependent upon cardiac output. So if you take someone with a very large cardiac output under a hyperdynamic condition, their gradient may be to the point you'd consider it severe However, given that they have a large output, in reality, the stenotic valve is not all that tight. And that's why we tend 
to make decisions based more on valve area than just pressure gradients. So the valve area is the tiebreaker number, if you will. That's the number that you're going to use to determine if someone's severe enough to warrant surgery? I would say that that is maybe the most important hemodynamic measurement, but the decision for surgery is always based on symptoms. And so if a patient is symptomatic, the hemodynamics help you determine whether the symptoms are from the aortic stenosis. If the patient is totally asymptomatic and is doing well and doing what they want to do, then I would find it hard to send that patient for a valve replacement, no matter almost what the hemodynamics show. Now, we're getting better and better non-invasively with echo and also calculating aortic valve areas, uh, both by equations and by polymetry. How well do those areas correlate with the ones you get in the cath lab? I think in laboratories that are very good at echo imaging, the numbers correlate very well. And so, for example, if, if we have a patient with critical aortic stenosis by echocardiogram, and they come to the catheterization lab to have a coronary angiography prior to surgery. In many cases, we do not cross that valve into the left ventricle to assess the aortic valve because we are very confident in what the echocardiogram has shown. However, in patients in which echocardiogram maybe is not quite as definitive, in those cases, I think the cardiac catheterization and especially the left heart catheterization can be very useful. Now, when you're in the catheterization laboratory and you're doing these measurements, cardiac output needs to be measured for the formula. Does it make a difference what type of cardiac output measurement you make, thermodilution versus FIC methods? In most cases, we, we measure both. The FIC method, which is performed using oxygen saturations, and the thermodilution method, which is performed by injecting room temperature saline into the right atrium. They both have their strengths and their weaknesses. And especially since we're making a decision where small areas can have big impact using the Gorlin formula, we measure cardiac output using both methods and then look at a calculated aortic valve area using both methods. Is there a particular valve area that you would say that valve area is definitely severe aortic stenosis, or is it, again, all of these measurements together to come to that conclusion? I think it's all the measurements together. Traditionally, 0.7 centimeters squared has been considered the cutoff for critical aortic stenosis with valve areas between 0.7 and 1.0 considered a gray area. However, as I emphasize to our cardiology fellows, there are enough potential errors in the Gorlin formula that you should never make decision based solely on the number, that you need to take the whole constellation of the patient, the symptoms, and the other hemodynamic findings before arriving at a decision. If you are just joining us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and I'm discussing with Dr. Rick Stauffer the use of hemodynamics in aortic valvular disease. Now, the patients that I find the most difficult to try to evaluate and decide what to do are patients who clearly have aortic stenosis, aortic valvular disease, and left ventricular dysfunction. Can we talk a little bit about those patients? How do we evaluate those patients and determine do they truly have severe fixed aortic stenosis, or is the aortic valve just not opening well enough because cardiac output is low? Those are a very challenging group of patients to deal with, and it's very critical to to sort out this question. If you send a patient for an aortic valve operation who does not have aortic stenosis, they may well die during the surgery. On the other hand, if you don't operate on a patient with critical aortic stenosis, then they're never going to get better. There's a lot of work in this area, the so-called low-output aortic stenosis, and what it turns out is that low cardiac outputs, there's enough potential error in the measuring cardiac output and in the Gorlin equation that you can sometimes be confused and your calculations show you an aortic valve area which is consistent with critical AS but 
In reality, the valve is not stenotic, and this is called pseudoaortic stenosis. And the best way to eliminate that possibility is to increase the cardiac output and repeat your measurements. And you can do that in the catheterization lab or in the echocardiography lab using either dobutamine or nipride, any pharmacological intervention which will increase cardiac output. If as cardiac output goes up, if the gradient goes up, the gradient between the left ventricle and the aorta, then generally that's consistent with real valvular aortic stenosis. If the gradient remains the same as cardiac output goes up, then that's more consistent with pseudoaortic stenosis. So when do you think pseudoaortic stenosis may be present? Is this a patient where you do a Gorlin formula and you have a 0.5, 0.6 valve area, but your gradient is only 10, 12 millimeters of mercury mean? Uh, that's exactly right. Anyone with a low output and a low pressure gradient, those are the ones that you think about pseudoaortic stenosis. And would you routinely then use a dibutamine challenge to recalculate everything at that point? Yeah, what, what we do in the cardiac catheterization laboratory, we will first look at the coronary arteries, make sure they don't have severe coronary artery disease, and will therefore tolerate the dobutamine. And then we do use dobutamine here, and we begin at five mics and titrate the dose up to as high as they will tolerate, hopefully getting enough cardiac output that we can see whether the gradient persists or increases, and if it does, then we can confidently make an assertion that there is true valvular aortic stenosis. Now, I would expect with this patient it would be very critical to get accurate measurement of cardiac output. And I know if patients have low cardiac output or, for example, a lot of tricuspid regurgitation, we can get some errors in cardiac output, especially with thermal dilution. Are there ways that we can uh, overcome that or go around that or, or notice that that's happening? Well, I think it's important to measure the cardiac output at the same time you're measuring the gradient. I think some people will measure cardiac output and then if it takes 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes to cross the aortic valve, it's essential to come back and measure the output again, realizing that even if we do that, there are limitations in the way we measure the output. The other thing I would mention is there's now available what's called a dual lumen catheters. And these catheters, you can, and they're available either as a pigtail or a multipurpose, you can measure the pressure right below the valve and right above the valve, and therefore you can avoid all the potential errors with comparing uh, femoral artery pressure to left ventricular pressure. So let's say you've got a patient like this and you've done dibutamine and the valve area stays very critical. So we have a patient now with what appears to be critical AS, but uh, ejection fraction is low, cardiac output is low. Is this patient still a candidate for surgical intervention? Will they be helped by doing surgery in that case? I think they are a candidate. In some of these patients, the reason the left ventricular systolic function is reduced is because of afterload mismatch or basically the left ventricle can't keep up with the work required to both open the valve and pump blood to the body. However, all these patients, the mortality is significant even if that's the case. So I don't remember the exact numbers, but what I carry in my head is in a patient with critical aortic stenosis and decreased left ventricular systolic function and true aortic stenosis, the chance of improving is 70%. The chance of difficulty during surgery or dying during surgery is still 30%. So mortality is high, but in these patients, you know, as you and I have both seen, if, if they don't find something you can replace, in many cases, the natural history is not good either. Can there be improvement in cardiac function if you relieve that stenosis at the aortic level? Some, some of these people have dramatic improvement in left ventricular function, and they'll start at 20 or 25% before surgery. And, and then when you do an echocardiogram four weeks after surgery, their ejection fraction is 40 or 45% or maybe even in the normal range. And also, coincidentally, will have dramatic improvement in symptoms where they can barely walk across the room before 
and now they're climbing steps and keeping up with their grandchildren and things like that. Well, I want to thank Dr. Rick Stauffer, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the use of hemodynamics in evaluating patients with aortic stenosis and aortic insufficiency. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com, register with the promo code RADIO, and receive six months free streaming for your home or your office. And thank you for listening. Tune in each hour for the ReachMD feature series, Focus on Medical Education. We thank you for listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. This ReachMD program is featured on CIRMO, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.cermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.